Welcome, everyone, to the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contry, and my guest this week is Brent Black, otherwise known as Brentofloss. Brent's been on YouTube doing the With Lyrics video game music track series since 2007, and he has a new party game out called Use Your Words. Woo, I'm excited. Brent maybe is. Brent, welcome. Thank you, Pat. How's it going, man? Oh, I look great, don't I? It's a... I'm getting to the point where do I try to keep working hard or say, F it, I'm going to retire uh, in my late 30s and say, screw it, and try to live off my, my vast royalties I have out there on YouTube? No, that's not going to happen. But um, yeah, it's, I'm doing all right. What about you? No, I'm not bad. Uh, it's, you know, I know that podcast exists out of time, but it's a Saturday early afternoon, just kind of having a pretty chill day uh, here in Philadelphia. My my fairly new home base. You move every like it seems like nine months. You move around. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, it was it was <laughs> basically New York City for ten years. But then, in the during the making of Use Your Words, uh, just the 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 smart way to do it with my convention and travel schedule was to put all my stuff in storage and basically be a nomad for about a year, which was uh, taxing but humbling. And really makes me appreciate things like having uh, my own my own desk lamp, for instance. You know, instead of using own, somebody else's at an Airbnb or or just your own bar of soap. Yeah, you know exactly things, exactly things we take for granted. Precisely, <laughs> your own dental floss. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, screw it. Let's let's dive into your game. We might as well. You brought it up. So. The past, what, two years, two and a half years, you've been working on this new Use Your Words game, correct? Yeah, I had the idea, I actually just recently went back and read the first thing I wrote down about it, and that was in February 2015. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we, we released it just a hair after two years past the, the inception. And that's on Steam, PS4, uh, Xbox One, I Yep, yep. It's uh, soon to be on PS4 also in Europe as well as Wii U, and we're hoping the Switch. We can't really confirm details, but I can say we're 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 very optimistic I, about the Switch. I would, I'd rather your game be on a non-dead system. Yes, so that would be that would be great. You, you know, know, yeah, we get we do we do get flack for that. The thing is, we had that crossroads. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. Yeah, we had that know? crossroads that ukulele had, where the switch, you know, in the middle of development, just completely snuck up on the world, and we kind of went, well, we promised our Kickstarter backers the Wii U, and frankly, no offense to Nintendo, but the Wii U is not the easiest console to port for. So it's like we had put resources into that. Uh, so we decided, okay, let's let's follow through with the Wii U. Try to get on the Switch, but uh, yeah, we we are, and and ironically, the Wii U being the last the last major uh, console that you know confirmed in our Kickstarter that we're actually releasing on. But the joke does not escape me. But we're just following through on a promise. Uh, the P, uh, the PS Vita ports coming soon as well. Oh yeah, I can't wait to see everyone crowd around at a party. We're just going to go backwards in time. We're going to go work on PS3 then, then 360, then maybe a GBA at some point. Tell you what, the but, GameCube uh, might... port of this is going to kick ass. <laughs> little little disc collector's edition. Yes. It'll be a two-disc set. Uh, we might as well talk about the game then. Just give a quick rundown on what it is so people out there know what the hell this is. Uh, well, okay. So I'm going to assume people listening have not played any of the Jackbox games. And if you have, you'll be a step ahead. Uh, basically, it's a party game where you play it on a TV typically or, you know, a laptop. But everyone's crowded around a screen uh, 
three to six players, and uh, you use your phone or any other smart device with a browser for input. So it's basically a fill-in-the-blank comedy game where the whole idea is you're presented with the setup for a joke, you write the punchline, and people vote for the you know their favorite answer. Um, we have done a lot of work to make sure that uh, you know anxiety is low because not everybody. Some people are intimidated by the idea of, like, I have to be funny. So there's a house decoy button where you can use one of our house answers as a disguised answer and blend it in with the others and sort of set a trap because if somebody votes for that, they'll lose points. So there's always kind of an escape hatch. Uh, A lot of multimedia. You get to uh, write a a subtitle for, like, a foreign film clip, like from a Godzilla-type movie or stuff like that. Uh, Write a headline for a newspaper. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, like, we we're definitely the the subtitle mini game is heavily influenced by Mystery Science Theater three thousand. Um, sure, but uh, yeah, it's it's that it's a game for we call it a game for funny people and their unfunny friends because I think it, it'll it'll attract the class clown smartass types, but be fun enough and easy enough that even people that think they're not funny are ha- going to have a great time and a lot of times do very well points wise. So you give an option of people to pick. You said the house answer, and I believe what I believe there's a penalty if you trick the other players into selecting that answer. Right. There's every every round the game automatically throws in a house answer. So if you vote for that one, you're going to lose 250 points. And and, uh, so the logic uh, around that being this is a cornier answer, maybe in theory, maybe you should not have chosen it, or. It's just to throw a wrench into things. Well, being, being you know, like, if you want to get into the behind the scenes, it's actually – there's a lot going on with it. It, it, it uh, First and foremost, they tend to be funny even if sometimes they're a little bit too smart for somebody to have figured out in 30 seconds. So they're going to ultimately – like they're going to make more laughs per minute. But also it encourages the people playing to write to the room if you have inside jokes, if you have topical humor that the game couldn't know. Um or uh, that, callbacks to earlier, you know, session jokes. Absolutely, yeah. it's it's basically secretly encouraging you to be original in a way that's actually not that hard. Just like play to the room that you're with, uh, but also because of the house decoy system, it it creates an element of chaos and creates hand in hand with the house decoys a way that people that don't think they're very funny or they're anxious can always. Just press a button that sort of gives them kind of a random Cards Against Humanity card. Maybe it's going to be funny and you're going to get points if people vote for it. Or maybe, uh, you know, maybe you'll get a dud and nobody will vote for it. That's the, the gamble you're taking when you press the house decoy button because you're dipping into that pool of house answers. But it also sets us apart from other similar games. Uh, one in particular, Quiplash, which was announced a little while after we, you know, kind of created the concept. I think there's a misconception that we t- tried to make a game like Quiplash after it came out. But actually, we kind of had a similar idea, and then Quiplash announced it, and we went, okay, so let's make this its own thing in every possible way. So you jumped into this game development world uh, fairly fresh. You didn't have a background in this before. You've been uh, you know, doing the uh, With Lyrics videos for the past, I don't know, nine years uh, what was that transition like? Was that scary for you to sort of say, okay, I'm not totally abandoning this world, but um, my time's going to be more dedicated now towards this development? I mean, what was that like? W- w- was there trepidation? Were you like, okay, screw it, I have to do this? Um, both. You know, I I, I think that uh, aside from the With Lyric series, 
pretty much all growing up, I was uh, the kind of person that would just have an idea for a big project, get obsessed with it. Uh, it would just consume everything. Uh, you know, I wrote uh, musicals, like comedy parody shows in college that would just take up all of my thought life for nine months, and then I'd put them on. Um, I, you know, like directed shows in high school. I, uh, you know, one time wrote a little movie for an extra credit project in English and ended up taking like all of our free time for weeks. So this, I think, is just another <laughs> in a long line of me going, hey, what if I did this? And once I, once I was into the concept and once I had – uh, my co-creator, Julian Spillane, who's a veteran developer, telling me, hey, not only is this a great idea, but we could do this. Once that happened, the promise of this fresh, exciting new project to take on um, really just took over. So, like, trepidation at absolutely every turn, showing friends of mine the clunky prototype and them, like, kind of going, Haha, I guess that's pretty fun. I mean, going, oh, my God, have I made a total piece of crap? Uh, thing, but like also my last the last few years of my life have been worthless. Yeah, no, I mean like it's, it's you definitely have moments where you're up at, late at night and you're like, what if I bit off way more than I could chew with this? What if this was a horrible idea? But I will tell you, despite trepidation at various crossroads throughout development, uh, I've gotten to a point now where like. Um, you know, there's, there's there are always things to tweak, and luckily in 2017 you can always patch. But I feel like uh, the fear was really just a motivator to get it right and and continue making it better during the process. And I'm real proud of what we what we ended up with. I see some similarities between us when it comes to sort of projects and how we approach them. Uh, but I will say this: that for my larger projects, I did a feature-length film in college. Um, I did this awful book that just came out six months ago. Um, I think you have to push yourself when you're doing these things. Otherwise, if you're not pushing yourself, what type of project are you actually working on? If you're not challenging yourself, like, is it actual quality work you're doing? Does that make sense? Like, if you, if you can just do an easy, simple game, you know, it ends up being like Snake. All right. Everyone else has done that, or it's simple, it's easy to do. I could have done a uh, you know a book where was basically doing a two sentence synopsis of each game and thrown on a you know some some weak screenshot. Uh, but I I think there's something you said for when creators push themselves, inventors, and there has to be some fear there because you could fuck it up, or or it could be a project where you end up spending all this time on it and no one cares. Right. Well, and and I think that that's. You know, it, it's uh, I. I am definitely a moth attracted to that kind of a flame. Um, it, it's it's uh, like the with lyric series on YouTube certainly is not going anywhere. But after you know, in early 2015, it had been on the map for at that point uh, coming up on eight years. And after a while, it's like if you realize that you're good at something, that you've carved out a brand. That, and and you don't have kids, you don't have, you're not married. You know, I was single and unattached at that point. So it's not like uh, some YouTubers I know who are great people, but like whether or not they are passionate about their brand 10 years in, if they have kids and this is how they make their money, they're going to keep doing it because it's a day job. And I respect that entirely. However, there was a chance for me to go, how do I switch things up and use sets of muscles I haven't used in a while. Um, and, you know, like the, the Brennel Floss with Lyric series is very, is very niche. 
it's only really going to appeal to people that have played the particular video game I'm singing about at any given time. Whereas Use Your Words, um, what I love about it is like I could show it to anyone and whenever I'm a little nervous about whether somebody's outside the audience, they surprise me. I've had a great time playing it with 60-year-olds. Uh, I've t- We've turned on our family mode filter and played it where a four-year-old was playing on a team with his mom and writing some of the funniest answers because he's four and doesn't even really know what he's saying. And, uh, you know, so I think for me part of the addiction of this particular project is that – Compared to my YouTube thing, it just feels very mainstream and feels like I'd be proud to talk to anyone on a plane who's going to interrogate me about what I do um, and be like, no, here, here's what it is. Check it out. You know, Sure. It's a more mainstream game in general. However, that's not how you've sort of made a name for yourself the past almost decade. So it's interesting that uh, you've reached a sort of uh, social media middle age uh not necessarily, you know, you're going to go out and buy a Porsche to compensate, but you're discovering something new you want to do, and you're trying to not marry that to your former life, but find a way to engage both at the same time. And I think it's interesting uh, because, you know, you're probably seeing that, you know, you, you on your YouTube channel, you know, now it's like I'm showing off my game, I'm showing off the trailer, and you have to get your your subscribers to buy into that, to not just buy into the game, buy into you as the creator allowing you to present them the game after this is totally sort of new style content that they haven't really seen before on your channel. So is that scary at all to sort of say, okay, I'm, now I'm sort of jumping out with this project and hopefully my fans of the last decade, hopefully they buy into that? Um, scary is on the list of things I would use to describe <laughs> it. I mean, really, you know, uh, this is inside baseball, but it's it's just, it's cannibalizing my my audience a little bit. But the thing is like, Again, the the With Lyrics series will continue, and it's not going anywhere. But, uh, you know, some people value security over everything. And I think I, at a certain point, creatively value novelty and a new thing to conquer, a new thing to take on and see how I interact with it um, with varying degrees of success. You know, like I did a webcomic for two years that was like, fine, did okay. Uh, but like, you know, didn't reinvent the wheel. But but to answer your question, um, you know, some some people come to my YouTube channel the way that someone would go to McDonald's for a Big Mac. And some of them, if they're coming to my YouTube channel and they see use your words content, I'm going, I can also make lasagna. And they're like, we know lasagna exists. We are here <laughs> for the Big Mac. Um, and I don't blame yeah. them because if I go to you know, the Angry Video Game Nerds channel, and he's doing, uh, you know, he's going to, like, review a Faulkner novel, um, or he's going to do a... That could be interesting. If he's going to do a retrospective on, (laughs) uh, you know, like, early Sumerian legends and folktales, like, okay, well, that's interesting, James. That's not really what I came here for. He has not done that, by the way. Just the point being... Sometimes if you're giving them a product that's not what they signed up for, well, they're just either going to only watch one, thumb it down, uh, or or just stop watching after a while. And that's fine. Um, at a certain point, um, the thing that I'm more passionate about now is the game. And while that's a thing that probably if I had a publicist, uh, they would say, hey, don't admit that. But it's just the truth. And, and uh, music's still a huge part of my life. 
I still love making jokes. I still love playing games and uh, observing things about them that I hope nobody else has. But right now, you know, like talking about and improving this game is like the thing that I wake up. It's like the reason to get up in the morning and, and keep going. Well, haven't you really touched upon something that I think I brought up when I spoke to, I believe it was uh, Mike Matei, about YouTube channels sort of started off uh, and got popular with sort of our crowd as being a platform for a specific show or program. And now they've evolved more, and they had to have evolved, to be more about the personality behind the YouTube channel to maybe have the same person that you're there to see, but not necessarily now for the singular show, but for all the other content they provide. And and that's where I, I've seen my sort of career branch off to with obviously the podcast and then to a lesser extent, something like flea market madness, um, you know, but for you, I think you're at the point where you, you're not that you haven't done this in the, in the past, but now you're forced to like, this is your second career now. Now this is what, I, I can no longer just be married to the one the one um, show. Now I have to try to evolve in some way. And if that you know if that comes at the, the small price of some of your original subscribers being turned off, so be it. That's just the way the world works. At least that's my perspective on it. Sure. You know what one one big um, motivator in all this, or at least a comfort to me, was reading Steve Martin's book Born Standing Up. Um, he. In the middle of his stand-up career, uh, which was all that people basically knew about Steve Martin at first, uh, he just wasn't as into it anymore, started making movies, then got into writing novels, plays, music, and still did a movie now and then. But like basically at the height of his stand-up career, he just was like, you know, this isn't putting the same kind of creative fire under my ass. And he moved on while still doing more or less the same thing. Uh, and, and fans of his from early on still had plenty to to uh, experience from him. But he – and again, this is – it's not a perfect analogy because I'm not turning my back on uh, the With Lyric series. I think watching Doug Walker kill off the Nostalgia Critic was like all I needed in terms of knowing, okay, even if I'm like actually hiatus in my own mind – I will never kill this thing off because, number one, I know I'll miss it the next day. But number two, if you sort of and – and by the way, this is no disrespect to Doug Walker. Love the guy. Very talented. Um, but point well, being – Well, you're – let's look for our audience. You're just – in case I don't know. You're referring to Doug. Uh, he, he killed off the Nostalgia Critic in one of their anniversary videos. Uh, it was gone for like seven months or so, six months, and then it was brought back. Right. Well, he, I guess he attempted so to do a new series uh, that was, I guess, sort of the new evolution of his – internet video career and uh you know it it was just not as well received and uh i think he made the the choice to uh, to do what worked and to give the audience what they wanted um and my only point in saying that is he probably wouldn't have had to it wouldn't have looked like such an about face had he not made the point to kill off the character uh, and sort of say this is over. And so for me, while it may be a while before I'm doing with lyrics stuff all the time or releasing a new album, um, I feel like I have to keep that door open because uh, 
it's it's just a mistake to well, to to like it's a mistake to forever turn your back on something that still has potential and and ultimately in my case that really put me where I am professionally. Well, it's basically not you have to understand what brought you to the show, so to speak. Right. And if you haven't developed something else that keeps the people there before you say, okay, this is over, your fan base might be like, okay, we haven't learned about anything else you've been doing. You haven't introduced us. So this is sort of a – you're cutting off your arm and you know there's, there's, you don't have a second one right. even to, to shake our hand metaf- metaf- physically, metaphorically. You know, so, so – um, but you, you've sort of stayed on a singular path to this point uh, where – did you ever have the opportunity to maybe say, "Oh, let's branch off into something else"? I mean, now you're doing you are doing a podcast, trends like these. You've been doing that for a decent amount of time now, but but that's divorced from your YouTube channel at this point. So, I would, so some of your fans might not even know about that. that that's going on. It, it, do you ever think about, well, maybe I could incorporate that into the YouTube sort of uh, persona that people know, or is that a little bit uh, again scary? To well, try to do that? I, I have thought about it, but the thing is, like, you know. I think that people who consume internet media, internet video and podcast, they prefer to feel that they are always listening to or watching a pure, truthful version of a human. Um, but just as I think certain people early on with, you know, I'm using the analogy of the angry video game nerd. I think a lot of people assumed that's how he was all the time when I met him. In 2009, I was shocked at how chill he was and how not particularly angry. Um, <laughs> and so you were still in the mindset of the person doing their YouTube show. That's how they were in real life. Right, which I think, frankly, YouTube having a huge audience of people you know, under 18, I think that a lot of them, at least at first – don't necessarily know the difference and don't necessarily need to. Uh, you know, everyone from like you think about Johnny Carson, the original Tonight Show, or rather the guy that really popularized the Tonight Show to the, the extent that it got to, uh, was one guy in front of the camera. And you hear all kinds of stuff about behind the camera. He was this. He was that. Um, my point is this. My Floss persona aside from a couple of heartfelt sad songs is typically uh kind of a kind of a douchebag kind of uh you know biting satire and anarchic humor uh, or anarchistic kind of like Marx Brothers style nobody gets a pass type humor um and that's if 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 I were a six-sided die that would be one side of me but certainly not the whole picture well trends like these is uh a podcast that is essentially covering trending news stories, but it dips toe and sometimes dips whole leg into politics. And um, I guess I just felt like uh, getting political rarely did anything for me as Brental Floss. And the, the, the side of myself that I put forward in trends like these is sort of the opposite. Um, the way that... The way you act with your friends at school is not the same as the way you act when you're spending the weekend at grandma's house. And you're, it's the same person, but you're not putting the same side of yourself forth. Um, and so for me, the idea of introducing the trends like these presentation of myself into the YouTube Brennel Floss uh, space felt like an unnecessary complication when I, I'll tell you right now – that the average Brennel Floss fan 
uh, is just not all that interested in keeping up with news and politics. And that's certainly not why they're uh, on my YouTube channel. There's certainly some crossover. But, um, you know, I I just decided pretty early on I would talk about it on social media because my social media followers tend to be the more lifelong will will follow you whatever weird thing you decide to do kind of fans. But the YouTube subscribers are pretty much there to hear me tell fart jokes about Mario and and Mega Man. So at this point, you you are uh, resigned to the fact that your YouTube channel is going to stay basically the singular show channel for the most part, where this is the Brent Flaw show, this is the brand. You might come for a little bit of Brent Black, but, you know, that's just the commercial breaks. You're really here for Brent Flaws. Sure, but I mean, like, again, you know, it's it's there's a spectrum. Uh, there came a point a few years ago where I decided that my little slogan on my channel art would be video games, music, comedy. Um, and the thing about trends like these is it's occasionally a little bit of comedy. It's once or twice. <laughs> never video games. Yeah, once or twice a year it's music. But it's rarely – it's never video games. It's rarely music. It's rarely comedy. And whereas Use Your Words is absolutely video games and comedy. Um, so that's why I felt more uh, – it made more sense to put Use Your Words content because if you actually sit there and watch it, it's a fun game to watch. And if people are – you know, like if you're watching a group have fun with it, unless they're you know, telling jokes you find terribly offensive or something, you're probably going to enjoy it and get a few laughs out of it. Have you ever let your YouTube audience know about the podcast that, that you – Sure. I think I did, you know, like a, an update vlog. Um, and again, this is a bit of sleight of hand because if I put the word with lyrics on a video and do like the branded thumbnail, I'll get 30,000 to 50,000 views that first day. If I do an update vlog, maybe 5,000 uh, if I'm lucky on a good day with a good upload time. And so by by talking about it there, the people I'm talking to are bigger, more dedicated fans who will who will listen to uh, whatever I have to say and are more interested in whatever I have to say rather than just getting the product the with lyrics video that is what they came for in the first place. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm cynical about that, but I think that it's really just a matter of honesty. Uh, I don't expect every subscriber to be interested in my personal life or the other things going on in my career. But by making a video that's clearly signaling, hey, this is not the flagship brand, well, it's going to get only the people that are more likely to enjoy the podcast in the first place. So if you got to the point, though, where you – I'm not saying this is going to happen tomorrow. I'm not going to blow you up. But say five years from now, you're just saying, okay, with lyrics, it's done, it's over. But I still have this YouTube channel there. And and it has at this point, you know, half a million subscribers, which is saying theory. What what's your plan at that point? Would you then say, all right, I don't use it anymore to promote my work? Uh, do I now try to cross pollinate and start promoting the shows that I have available at this point? Uh, what I'm trying to get at is, I'm, I'm not saying it's a right or wrong decision, but there's a philosophy to be said for um, throwing out everything on your channel. And then if some people don't like it, they don't like it. If some people leave, they don't leave. But at least you're building a new base at the same time. And then that happened to me with my podcast. When I first put, started putting the podcast on the channel, of course, it was hate. The, oh, what are you doing? We don't want to see a podcast. We don't want to see who the hell is this other guy. 
But now that's the the most of the content on the channel is that, and the, and the channel wouldn't have grown more without that. It would have been stuck. So I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer for your situation, but I just th- think it's something that might be thought about at some point. Where you yeah, might have a choice I, anyway. I think honestly, look, if 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 I felt like uh, another brand got big enough to to completely, you know, amoeba off into its own thing, it would probably just get its own channel. The reason being, uh, the word Brennel floss. People think Brennel floss, and only a small minority think human being Brent Black, and. Others think <laughs> Dr. Mario with lyrics. They think Zelda with lyrics. The, you know, uh, and and that's fine. And so to me, I have no – and, you know, to be honest, like the podcast is, um, you know, certainly not rich. Um, but it's doing better than it did the year before. And it's it did better that year than it did the year before that. And I feel like – there's there's a certain, you know, cannibalizing the audience with use your words, but again, that's much closer to the same thing. The thing that I'm doing in trends like these is just such a different part of my personality that like the product is nothing in the neighborhood of what they're used to seeing on the Brennelfloss channel. And it's definitely it's barely even Brent Black. It's just I happen to be the guy giving you the news and giving you the political analysis. Um but so my guess what my point is, uh, is like um, I hear what you're saying in terms of like there are bodies there. There are subscribers and that's a platform. But as long as it's called Brennel Floss, I think that preserving the idea that it's about video games, comedy and music um, is is the way to go in order to not just be this confusing thing that leads to a total subscriber exodus. Cause, oh, absolutely. Know, but. You you might be though looking at it the wrong way just through the fact that I look at it the names on YouTube channels the same way I look at Twitter names they don't mean anything because you have your Twitter name but then you have an actual name attached to it and that's the person representing that uh, Twitter ch- uh, channel or ch- Twitter name at that point um, and I think the evolution has occurred with many 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 channels so like James Nintendo Nerd that's still technically the address. But that's the Cinemassacre channel, for example. I'm not pushing you to do it, Brad. I'm just saying something to think about. Sure. That's all. I mean, I, I think I, 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 to your Brent, Brent, Brent got to eat. That's to your saying. point. <laughs> to your point, I think that um, that you asked what my plan is. Well, I think my life right now is kind of in the in the in the lobby. Um, because use your words is still inside its first ten days post launch. We haven't even launched on all the platforms we're going to launch on, and so the possibility exists for this to be anything between um, a small, modest release of a game that comes and goes and really doesn't pay for the time it took to make for me, or something that becomes. Uh, worthy of near full-time work to continue curating it, making future stuff. And that's really going to have a huge effect on my YouTube channel and probably the podcast. So you have a a number in your head where, okay, if Use Your Words does this amount of sales, I know this is something I could take full-time, do game game development as sort of my main source, uh, primary source of work and income. Um, And you're at the point right now where... You're looking at different possibilities where maybe it doesn't moderate, you know, moderate success, 
does gangbusters, and I'd be dumb not to do a you know a follow up or a different game. So that's that's exciting. It is exciting. Scary and exciting. It is exciting. And this yeah. all this this all leaves out the fact that probably knowing me, what I'll do is once use your words becomes boring and rote, um, I will probably feel the need to move on creatively and you know. Use Your Words is now one of my creative children. I will never abandon it. Uh, and even if it you know, does so well that I can hand off a lot of the work to other people, making those executive decisions and having that sort of creative curation is always part of it. But, like, you know, this I, I, I did a lot of writing for the stage growing up, and I haven't done that in a long time. Um, there's always uh, the possibility of just deciding, you know what? All these Brennel Floss things that I never made that have been sitting on the shelf, it's time to make an album out of those and get back to it and just do a fun kind of, you know, uh, renaissance period where I'm doing a lot of the old stuff like I used to. Um, All these possibilities are there. And then there's, um, you know, there's always the possibility that somebody approaches me with a with a project that I hadn't thought of. And I go, hell, yeah, let's do that. Um, So it's an exciting little landscape in front of me, but it's very much right now contingent upon um, whether the current use your word sales are flash in the pan or whether this becomes sort of a perennial that people just sort of keep hearing about and trying out and want more of. I think you're missing out on the important port port to the Nokia N-Gage. I think once you get that one going, (laughs) you're going to see massive sales. We're Uh. just going to keep going backwards. Uh, do you miss uh, – I know you don't do it as much anymore due to your work on the game. Do you miss uh, the performances, um, the live performances? I do enough of them that I don't have to. Um, I, I I still do – like I think by the end of this year I will have done something like six or seven live Brennel Floss performances and uh, something comparable to that last year. Um Mostly at conventions? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, I've got a couple people that asked me about doing tours now and then. Uh, Mega Ran, I've toured with twice. Uh, I've talked to Professor Shy Guy about possibly doing a tour at some point. And that, what's great about tours is you get to do a lot of dates really quickly. And so people that, you know, would come out to see you but wouldn't get, you know, the, but you might, it might take a lot longer to do that many conventions. Um, you get to do it all in a two or three week period and you get to do 20 shows right back to back rather than it taking, you know, two months to do eight shows. And you've told me about some of them, maybe at smaller venues, random places, places where maybe some of the audience didn't know who you, you, who you were. Um, for those sort of performances, obviously that's different than when you're at a convention. Almost everyone knows who you are that comes to see you. Do you prepare differently for those? How do you approach those mentally where you're like, all right, I'm going to get out there. It's sort of like a stand-up comic doing an act. No one knows who I am, but this night might not be something they're even used to or know what, what's going on. The way, like, that how, I pre- what- the way that I prepare for a show where I think the venue's all wrong and the crowd's all wrong is chiefly anxiety. <laughs> um, <laughs> like when I tour with – Just panic. When I tour with Mega Ran – he is a cool character. He is like he can get any room of people going and just whether or not he cares if they don't immediately cotton to him, like you'd never know. He's just a consummate professional and he does like two, 200 or 300 shows a year. So like it's like back of his hand. For me, when I'm in like a weird little chili diner 
in Cincinnati <laughs> that like shoved half their booths in the corner so there was performance space. And I and free tortilla chips was each admission. You know? Yeah, and I go like, wow, this is where I'm going to do a Brennel Floss show. It's nerve wracking, but um, at the same time, when those shows go well, it is more rewarding and more of a relief and I feel like I'm in love with every person there even if it's only a crowd of 10 people if they're into it those 10 people at that chili diner are are like dancing and laughing and having a good time I'm probably having a better time there than main staging at a huge convention uh, where the audience is built in because you you displayed a proof of concept and it worked for the first time those people like this is my comedic humorous video game with lyric series you never heard of it it must work if you you guys are getting it right but obviously it, obviously there's some audiences that, that are sitting there like mm, I'm not sure what this is or if if this is something I would listen to normally so in your experience how quickly can you tell if you could that this is not going to catch on with this audience is there a point where you're like oh I would say um, before I even go on, the shape of the venue can have a huge effect on things. There's a there's a space in Milwaukee. Uh, I think it's called like Game Lounge 48 or something like that. It's 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 a it's a bar that has I, I probably got the name wrong. I've played it twice, but um, the the staff's very nice. Uh, cool people come out. But the place is shaped like the letter C. And the performance space is at the top of the letter C. And so you're speaking into a mic in a PA system that goes throughout the entire room at a bar where people might just be there to get a drink and not be there to listen to you. So because not everyone can see you and and not everyone's right up on the you know, area where you're singing, which isn't really a stage. It's just like an area they cordoned off. Um, it, when I do a Mad Lib, which is often the, the highlight of my live show, I, you know, fill it. I do a Mad Lib of a song and everyone throws in dirty words and then I sing it and it's usually pretty fun. But like if people just came out for a drink, maybe they're 55 and they're just a tired businessman and they're really not looking to, you know, fill in dirty words to my version of Let It Go from Frozen – um, and they also can't really see what's going on because they're on the other side of that C-shaped venue. Well, now you're going to watch them walk out on song three, like looking at me like, what are you doing, dude? Like they don't get it. <laughs> and, and, you know, so like a lot of times it's it's venue. But um, at that point, you're literally a lounge singer at that point. Sure. And I mean, you know, <laughs> if, if there's one human being that knows who Brennel Floss is, that came out, paid five bucks or whatever it is to, to hear me live, I can hone in on them and screw everybody else. But it is, you know, I, I'm up there alone for up to 50 minutes. And that is just a long time if you feel like you're dying or, you know, if it's one of those rooms where everybody's talking uh, and the the PA is not loud enough to overcome them, you know. But the thing is, this is all guerrilla performance. Um, occasionally, I'll do like I've done a show at the Hard Rock Cafe. I've done uh, I've main staged at big cons where it's like the tech is really good. But sometimes you find yourself in a venue that's just like not really um, optimized for this kind of performance, and it's a Monday night. 
So maybe not all the nerds felt like coming out to see you, but the people, the regulars at the bar are like scratching their heads. So you're locked into your performance. I mean, you have a set you are planning to do each night. So you, there's less, I guess, wiggle room and less audibles you can call if you think it's not going right or if you think that the audience may not be into it, correct? So you're pretty much stuck. You start the song, you got to finish it. You can't, you can't be like, all right, well, this joke, if you're a stand-up comedian, well, this joke isn't working out or this set and just sort of go to plan B. There's not really a plan B for you. Well, it depends. Overall. It depends. You're right about the fact that if a song's just not going over well, I'm committed to finishing it. Um, I'm committed to shutting off this phone. There you go. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's two different versions of my live show. There's the version where I do what I call Uncle Brent karaoke time, where I actually have uh, videos synced up so that you're watching me sing with, like, a funny video that bolsters the comedy. Um, and that's one way. And if I'm doing that kind of show, it's all very stage managed, very much in order, and only in an emergency uh, like, you know, like I started late, so I've got to hurry it up. Would I skip a song? But if I'm doing an iPod show where there's no visual and I'm just running it off of my phone, um, if a song didn't go so well the night before and the crowd's not feeling it this night, maybe I skip that one. Maybe I do a little bit more of the classic Floss stuff because I can tell more people are old fans versus people that are going to, you know, younger people that might prefer my Phoenix Wright because they were alive for it, you know. Um, but uh, at a certain point, if if you're, I mean, I've, I would say I've bombed out of the probably 100 to 125 live shows I've done. I would say I truly felt like I bombed only two or three times. Um, oh, that's not a bad bad percentage at all. No, there's there's plenty of them where I thought like, well, that was lackluster, or well, that could have gone better. But like, um, really walking away going like, what in the hell just happened? Is is like pretty rare. Or you're up there singing and dancing, doing your old Donnie Marie shtick, and then everyone in the audience just like shaking their head like, no, dude. We're not. We're not. <laughs> right. Well, and again, I, I, I'm telling you, it's so often venue. You know, I did a San Diego show back before you and I were friends uh, in 2010. And this venue was 21 and up, which is already a bad a bad idea because there's plenty of fans that are uh, 18 to 21 or under 18. Um, but also it was it had all these cafe tables, these risen up cafe tables that like stopped 20 feet from the stage. So people are far away. They're sitting on stools, and their bodies are, like, being told in every way, don't enjoy this. <laughs> and and oh. also, this guy's not important because he's far away. Um, and what you want is people standing up at the edge of the stage um, and being right there with you. You can look at them. You can touch them. You can talk to them. You can, you can make a joke about them in the middle of the song and really be there with them. But in that kind of venue, that venue sort of says, whoever's on that stage is background music. Um, so, you know, uh, well, if you ever, ever come out to San Diego again, I'll just be a plant in the audience. I'll just start grooving around. I think paid dancer on stage, you know, like, like they used to do with ska bands. Um, <laughs> you, you brought, you brought up an, an important point, I think about the age of your audience and, you know, you've been doing this for close to a decade now. I'm guessing that it's good that most of them have grown with you. They've grown up with you. It's not like, you know, if I was 17 or 16, when I started listening 
uh, or watching Breno Plaza videos, when I turn 20, I'm out. It seems like they followed you along for the most part on the journey. And, that's, and that, should, I guess, should be accommodating to your sense of self-worth. Sure. That, you know, this is, I, I think that my closest analogy uh, would be Homestar Runner. Now, I don't think I was ever as clever or enduring in my work as Homestar Runner. But uh, I felt like, you know, Homestar Runner was like ages 18 to 21 for me. But I still love it. I still love quoting it. If I ever met the guys who made it, I would fawn all over them and gush. And I feel like now I've become a similar nostalgic relic. There are plenty of people who haven't watched a Brennelfloss video in years, but they find out I'm coming to town. They loved the songs back in the day. I'm still funny. And they come out for that nostalgic experience. You know, I saw Pee Wee Herman do his Broadway show in 2010 and he just poked his head out before they even took the lights to half he just poked his head out of the curtains at like one minute to showtime and the place erupted in noise and i could hear i was on like the, the nosebleed back row but you could hear young little baby voices and uh also like i mean like you could hear like everything from toddler to senior i mean senior citizen because people have been fans of his for multiple generations. Now, I'm nowhere near that in any measure. But what that taught me is you can be a good memory that is brought back to life when somebody comes out to see you. Um, and so as far as live shows, as long as I have enough new material that nobody's ever seeing the exact same show two in a row, I imagine I could continue doing live Brennelfloss shows for years um, because there will always be people that were somewhere between the age of 5 and 20 when I started. And, you know, a lot of them now are bar legal. So there's actually a, a surge of people that, like, couldn't have come to a bar show five years ago that can now. So you, you see it as comforting and not discouraging that worst-case scenario, we can have a 58-year-old Brenner Floss performing songs from 2010 that even if you know that well, maybe this is where I quote unquote, this is the best work I ever did. Not saying that's the truth, but just say worst case scenario. That's where your career peaked. As long as I know people still enjoy it, I'm satisfied with that. That I did something that even for a moment in time, people really loved. And even if I put a slight spin on it, this is something I can do for a while. And this is something that I'm, I can at least be proud of. Well, sure. You know, I, I, I think that I have, I've been referred to as the, the Weird Al of video games. And, like, that guy has not done anywhere near as much stuff in the last 10 years with music as he did in his first 10 years. Um, but if he ever just decides, I'm doing a tour, he'll get asses in seats. Now, I am the miniature YouTube version of that. <laughs> and I can get 50 people to come out to a show in St. Louis on a Tuesday. He could probably get 500, you know, people to come out. But he still is, even if people haven't been avid listeners of Weird Al, they still know the classics. They know what they liked when they were kids or when they were, uh, you know, younger or whatever. And they'll go see him. But you're sort of asking two questions because as far as satisfaction with the idea that Brennelfloss was my best work, um, I don't know. I think that I think that there are, th I, I think there are certain uh, heartfelt moments in the Brennelfloss library that I think are some of the most pure forms of creative expression 
I've ever put out into the world. And that weirdly sometimes through video game archetypes and lore, I've explored things that are hard to explore. Just, you know, I mean, like I did a song called The Ballad of Jeff, and it's about a kid who feels like he has no friends and his dad's uh, not in his life. Uh, uh, the Tutu Blues is, is about a very human thing of like, why do I keep striking out trying to find the love of my life? You know, these are things that uh, are classic, you know, Shakespearean level topics that I happen to do in a very nerdy niche way. But like, you know, I think there there is Brennelfloss work that is among my best work. But uh, I think that an artist always has to believe even to the detriment of the truth sometimes. That the the real best work is coming up. Isn't that the danger, though, to some YouTubers where the best work we've done may be behind us? And that could be maybe while, why some of us are trying to branch out. It may never happen successfully for either some of us or a chunk of us because that's just not how we're built. Or maybe we don't have the, the passion to want to do that. Or maybe we don't have the urge. Or maybe we don't have the competency to try something new. And I think that's more of a question for us since we are – the middle class of YouTube where we're never going to be, you know, the YouTubers that have five or 10 million subscribers that make, you know, half a million a year just by doing goofy videos that we are trying to find a different path or even an alternate avenue of creativity and also obviously income. But maybe that's for the best because then we could find something new. We're forced out of our shell. We're not constrained to that sort of, you know, YouTube box. Sure. You know, I think I think that really what we've what we've opened up here is the question of is somebody's best is someone is an artist. OK, is an artist able to determine objectively what their own best work is? Because you can go by what's their most popular work, what's their most lucrative work. But there's also the work that was most fulfilling to them. And, you know, like Jim Carrey did Ace Ventura and he did The Mask. And then he did later on in his career the number 23. Well, if the number 23 is Jim Carrey's favorite thing that was the most fulfilling to him and that he thought was his best work, well, you can't really take that away from him, even though nowhere near as popular or lucrative as Ace Ventura, The Mask. Uh, you know, so so like I think at a certain I was just going to say at a certain point as an artist and again, it sounds like a pretentious word, but I feel like at a certain point, if you're versatile and you're doing YouTube stuff, you're making media, you're just a different kind of artist. But if, if that's what you are at a certain point, um, you always have to kind of make a make a choice that can be Faustian about do I keep doing the thing that I know is popular because it's popular in order to maintain that engagement and popularity? Or do I do the thing that's going to fulfill me the most that I'm going to look back on most fondly when I'm about to die? And this is it, – it, there's no right answer because there, you never really know how the cookies are going to crumble. Well, it's like any musician or like you said, a movie star. That's the, the scene from Jay and Silent Bob Strikes Back where Matt Damon's with Ben Affleck and he's like – and they're doing the sequel to uh, what the hell is that movie? Goodwill Hunting. It's like Goodwill Hunting Two, like yeah. hunting, open season or something. And Matt Damon is like, "What I got to do this?" And Affleck says, "You do one for them, then you can do one for yourself." You know, so yeah, you, 
you sort of vacillate, vacillate between, all right, I'm doing something that I know I want to do and may not make money versus something that I may not want to do entirely, but I know this is popular, this is what people want. And that's something every musician has to go through or every actor has to, you know, has to do where they, okay, I'm doing this independent film that means a lot to me, but no one's going to see it maybe versus, you know, the Marvel film that I maybe don't want to do, like Mark Ruffalo. Yeah, it's cool that he's playing the Hulk, but, you know, is that really fulfilling him as an actor overall maybe versus, you know, the smaller films? So it's sort of that juncture we're at, except we have the opportunity to find a different career entirely, which is what you're doing right now. And which I guess I've partially fallen into with the book and maybe the podcasting where this could be an entire avenue unrelated entirely. Uh, so that's, I guess that's encouraging in some, in some aspects, but then it comes to a, a time balance and what's your energy and what's your work bandwidth. And that's what I'm struggling with right now where do we take on too much and is that detrimental to our health in the long term, at least psychologically, where we're working ourselves to find that runaway hit? You know, are we trying to be a jack of all trades and master of none? Uh, and that's something I personally struggle with where – because even growing up, I was always sort of the person where I liked working on several things at one time. But maybe if I dedicated more time to one thing in particular, I could have been better at that one thing. But then maybe that's just not my personality. I don't know. Yeah, you know, here's here's what I had to come to because I had, you know, there there was a there's been a piecemeal backlash against me slowing down parental floss stuff. It never came all at once, but you know, complaints, <laughs> people tapping their toe, um, and I had to come to a little philosophy that allowed me to stay the course with use your words um, and focus on that as much as I needed to, and that is this. I did not pick the music and lyrics and comedy career so that I could end up in a job where I wake up every day forced to do something I don't really like and do it over and over again every day. That's if you want security or you want a desk job, great. That's there's a lot of need for that. That's wonderful. That's what you do if you want to work for the weekend. And, you know, like have have that kind of lifestyle neato. But I didn't go to grad school for music and lyrics. What the hell is that? It's like Hogwarts. I didn't do that so that I could end up being kind of a factory farm of creative work. And that probably sounds pretentious. It might sound lazy. But at a certain point, I'm doing artsy fartsy stuff for the pursuit of the new exciting project. And if that's sometimes to the detriment of my security, well, okay, but I'd rather pursue that new exciting thing, um, hopefully lucrative, hopefully paying the bills. But um, I feel like if you end up doing the exact same formula every day, at a certain point, you're not even that into it anymore. You've actually created a an office day job out of uh, an artsy-fartsy bohemian career. Well, that's what I always said that I always saw. That's what Twitch has become. Like Twitch is so competitive where it's basically a, not even a nine to five. It's like a uh, eight to midnight job where you have to stream more. You have to do this. And at some point, the fact that you are, uh, you know, handcuffed to your desk playing video games, it's still, I mean, fun in theory. But if that's my reality for six or seven days a week... I personally don't want that because that gives me less freedom than having a a nine to five office job, and I think that's 
uh, sort of, you know, the other end of that spectrum. But in some in some points, we're working a lot of hours. You know, I, I've worked. I'll say, let's put it this way: I've worked fifty five, sixty hour work weeks working my crappy office job, and I've done the same thing working on all this with the book. At the same time, you know, working on, you know, uh, putting on a charity marathon, doing a stupid Nintendo Hemi Rhapsody video on the side, you know, like doing all this stuff where it's a lot of work, but at least it's something that I can direct in some capacity. And it's something that I think people are enjoying more than me trying to make pharmaceutical uh, companies 0.1% more profit that year. You know, like that's something that at least to me is more rewarding overall where I can look back and say, well, you know, maybe I didn't make millions doing it, but uh, at least I was sane enough to know that I was controlling my own destiny uh, to to some extent. And so that's why I sure. sort of... Uh, and- Go ahead. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there. No, go ahead. It's too late. I was just, <laughs> I was just saying, this is, by the way, not to uh, in any way denigrate those who who have day jobs. I honestly, there are times where I wish that I could hang with that kind of a job. And you know, we may see a future. I'm not ruling out a surprise kid uh, and going, okay, well, time to get serious. What can I do that's got a little bit more security? Um, because I've seen it happen to my friends, and they are fulfilled in a different way. Um, and like you said, there is, in a way, a certain freedom to structure where you know you're off at five, and you know you got Saturday and Sunday off. I haven't, I haven't had a. We're working on Saturday, you and me, right now. Um, and you're going to edit this and that's going to take some time. And, you know, like I'm going to go and I'm currently working on future DLC for use your words. And like, maybe I'll go out tonight, but it's not my crazy weekend to blow off steam from the work week. But the point I'm getting at is it's not like I think what I do is better or has more value than somebody that gets up and does a nine to five. It's that I can't do that. And, oh, I, I did do it, and it, and it killed me. So it's, yeah. I, I know, but there are obviously there are better companies than others. But at the going rate I was going, I was driving myself into the ground with my uh, nine to five. That ended up being you know working fifty hours a week regularly. But it wasn't just the number of hours; it was the stress of those hours. That's why sure. I don't I think people when when you hear about a nine to five, there are some nine to fives that are an absolute breeze compared to others. Uh, there are some companies where you're not on deadline pressure where, okay, this has to be done Thursday by 4. Uh, or you're staying fr- Friday night late to work on this and get this out. That was my reality where yeah. I always, even after work, I couldn't unwind because it was such high pressure based upon uh, client-setting deadlines where it was terrible uh, for me psychologically where you know there was a point where, yeah, I felt like I had to get pills in order to live my life normally, like in order to calm down. But at that point, I'm like, that's fucked up because – you're drugging yourself to get through your awful uh, life because the job is awful. Why not just cut out what's really the cause of it? And that's when I came to that conclusion when I quit my job almost five years ago and said, okay, I'm going to try to do more of this YouTube stuff full time. Um, and I probably should have done a lot earlier, just even for my mental health. I should have done it a year or so earlier because the job just kept getting worse and worse. But I'm getting into the side of you turning into my therapist. That you know, <laughs> But, <laughs> but – um, it's exciting, but you know, I always looked at YouTube as you know, at least the early YouTubers as we're like vaudevillians. You know, we're we're, so, we're sort of just like going around at conventions and we're doing our show and our act, and people like it. But you know, maybe in a hundred years from now, people like uh, James and yourself will be like looked upon finally, finally as like the Keystone Cops of a sort of new sort of uh, you know 
new industry or you transition into silent film and people remember you. Uh, you know, 100 years from now, it'll be very interesting to see what whatever YouTube evolves into, what that is at that point. Or whether, or whether we've already met the, the the entirety of the evolution in some aspects, you know. Yeah, it's interesting think, to say. I think that the, the 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 real unique thing that we will probably never see in that exact form again. The unique thing about I would say 2004 to like 2014. Obviously, we're still there's a long tail to the end of it. But the thing about that period is that unlike now, where you have increasingly uh, Corporate-backed, corporate-owned uh, YouTube channels that are to, at, at the mercy of you know advertisers who may or may not like your content. There was a time when the revolution was just the ease of self-broadcasting, and now instead of just thirty years before, where there were only three or four channels on TV, now you are a channel. You have uh, within the human population an unlimited. Uh, broadcast capability with your little webcam in your basement um, or eventually DSLRs and, you know, like, but, but the thing is that you know, now that you've got uh, so much more of old media and, and corporate America with their tendrils in this thing that they used to hate and not understand, what we'll never see again is the total crazy freedom and uncensored content uh that you saw it's like you know ham radio except somebody was paying attention you know like it was it was uh cable access except you didn't need uh 10 other people and permission from a local uh, a local station that was the revolution and i think that you know i don't think i am you know maybe i mean i'd like to think james will be kind of an early pioneer particularly in video game content i think that he really uh he set a standard of like what video game content could be about and i think the idea of like the angry ranty critic uh the review show that points out you know like that takes things that were bad and has a good time making fun of them uh he really you know but even then who knows who will be remembered who knows you know i think pewdiepie will um but like there are so many of us now, it's like an enormous university and it's not like every person at that university, you know, has their name on some big memorial one day. Everybody's going to remember who they remember, but we will, much like vaudevillians, you know, have been kind of in a class of people that were part of this crazy Wild West media revolution the likes of which maybe we will see again in some form, but I don't know. I think that I think the next time it happens, corporate media is going to be ready to jump on it and co-opt it. Not sure about that because the larger corporations are always slower to move and evolve. Um, so, but even if they do that, unless they prop up some kid with their with their you know blue yeti mic and webcam, it's tough for them to recoup costs uh, because. YouTube shows thrive and channels thrive on low-cost, easy content to produce. Uh, that's the ones that survive and get big. You need to put out content quickly. You need to do it often. Um, and you can't spend a lot on it or else you're not going to recoup your costs. And that's where I think individuals or smaller groups will always have an advantage over, all right, NBC, you want to start a YouTube channel? That's great. I guess you can use it to show clips of your TV shows, but you don't have the money. You don't have, let's say, you don't have the money to burn just to put out independent content 
uh, for YouTube because you're never going to get those costs back via views. It's just not how the world works. I mean, that's why I discovered through video game years where, yeah, it's produced for TV, but put on YouTube, you're just losing tons of money and time for doing that. And that's just what the reality is. So I don't know. I'm not saying you're going to be on the Mount Rushmore of YouTubers 100 years from now, Brent. But, you know, I think you'll, you'll have at least a footnote. Uh, for sure, we'd be like, yeah, it was one of those early YouTubers, at least in the video game genre, that sort of uh, is is remembered. You know, you have a little yeah. Plaque. I'd like to think that I'd be remembered <laughs> as like the first guy to popularize video game music as a song, as a sung form, before they all just were much more attractive. You're um, not going to be. It's going to be like the difference between a Hall of Famer and just a guy that was just hey, that was a good player. He had like a 12 year career. You know, he batted like 280. He, you know, he had a couple of home runs here and there. You know, not a, not a Hall of Famer, but you know, he, we can still retire his 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 jersey for his team. You know, the Mets will still retire your number, but you're not going to be in the Hall of Fame. I, I'd be happy with that personally. You know, if sure. I <laughs> At a certain point, you know, like part of what kept me going for the first five years of it was, I, you know, like I said, I went to grad school to write music and lyrics, particularly for the stage, and went into student loan debt for that. And so within two years of graduating, my full-time job was music and lyrics on YouTube. So even though it wasn't exactly what I set out to do, uh, it wasn't something all of my friends deeply respected, I was paying for my life in New York City from writing jokey songs about Mario. And that was a thing I could hang my hat on for a while. Um, I think that, you know, at a certain point... The, the desire to branch out comes from the repetition and just going, you know, I mean, I, I think if, you know, video gamers out there, sometimes if they corner me at a convention and ask me about this sort of stuff, I'll just tell them, look, some people can 100% a game and then open up their 100% save file and just play around in that world some more. Other people, they've 100%ed that and they're good. And at best, they have to wait a little while, maybe come back and start a new one later. And I feel like that's the point I got to with Brennelfoss, which is like, I, 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 it's not that I have nothing left to write. It's that like, I, I pretty much got it down. There, there, it's, it's doesn't seem to hold a bunch of creative surprises. And so, while the desire to make fans happy and to make new jokes and to have new fun videos, they're coming and it's still there. But I guess what I'm saying is. Um, that that at a certain point, I'm not obsessive enough or into the repetitiveness of it enough to do it as a full time gig forever and just watch my Edwin Drood face just age while I keep doing the same thing. <laughs> the the goatee gradually whitens over the decades. Oh, the it's already there. <laughs> I, I mean, like I, I I plucked the white ones, and luckily I've got a little bit of. Do like you really? A, Oh, yeah, and I've got got enough bleach blonde in this kind of crazy face rainbow that you can't always see the white ones. But, yeah, I plucked the white ones. Um, Why do you do that? I've got white leg hairs, dude. Like, I mean, my body's getting old. Are you that self-conscious that you want to plug? I have some. I have a beer right now. It might be gone. So I have a little white here, here and there. I I don't think it's that bad to have a little bit of white. I don't. Uh, It's self-conscious not so much as the fact that, like, is it your I, brand to be young? No, no. I, I, I mean, I got into the beard game late and then kicked myself for not having a fuller beard for, like, ever. Because, uh, frankly, it's a more attractive look than my old leprechaun goatee chin strap nonsense. Um, but, like, the uniformity of the way that the colors of my beard work, I really like it. And when there's a white one, it's like, hey, 
you. Get out of here. You're you're messing it up. You're messing it up. Get out. Uh, okay, we won't we won't delve into the OCD parts of that story. But uh, <laughs> has there ever been a, a point on YouTube where you felt like this isn't working out? I want to quit. I don't know if I ever asked you that before. Where you're just like, okay, this isn't working out. I want to get out of this, or this is not a good idea. Um. No, I mean, I mean, it. You know, I think the closest I've experienced to that is when my own personal ideology changes or my own personal style changes and there's a video millions of people have seen that reflect a very different ideology and personal style of mine from six, seven, eight years ago. And I find myself going, well, if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have made that. But that's not a reason to quit. That's just like cringing at who you were. In the past. Are, are you are you referring to something you might have said in a prior video or made a joke that could be seen as not sensitive in the current climate? All of the above. Okay, that's interesting. So, but you can't turn back the clock though when it comes to what what was acceptable now versus then for entertainment because sure. that's just how how the world sort of you know you know goes round and round. Of is course, that there are things that. You could say ten years ago. Hell, there's things that I, could, I said in a video, and probably in 2009, that I wouldn't get killed for nowadays. But people might be saying, "Oh, I have a problem with what you said," and that's just the way it is. And I think that you shouldn't feel bad about that. I think at the time, I don't feel bad for things I said when I was, you know, 18 years old, 17 years old. No, think, no, because I don't and think I, it was because mo- it, well, it was never malicious. I think that's always to me the, is what like what's the actual intent of what you're saying versus you know. Uh, the time period. Sure, it was never. It was never to, to spread hate or incite violence or anything like that. It's more just like, uh, you know, things don't age well and you grow up. A lot of it's just maturity, to be honest. Um, I think oh, I've made yes. Oh, yes. There's there's even just for sensibility of joke telling uh, and earlier Pat the NES punks. I'd be like, wow, I would never go for something that cheap again. Or I would never go. T- 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 I would never even go towards that area. I would go towards this now. But that's just like you said. That's just growing up. Sure, and I think that's part of why "Use Your Words" has so much of my personal attention right now. Is because it is, you know, my, my expert up bringing it back to that. My yes, my my co-creator <laughs> Julian said one night, you know, one night of many late nights uh, working on the game that he's been a Brennelfloss fan since the beginning, and this project use your words is like the most pure encapsulation of of like brent black that has ever been in a thing i've made and i think he also meant like me now me you know 2017 and that was hugely satisfying to hear because when you have this library of work that continues to represent the version of you now less and less you know you don't you don't you don't hide it you don't try to do the streisand effect where you like you know shove it under the rug because you end up being kind of a little museum of a human being, you know, changing and growing. But it, it's, I think that's part of like, like dove, dovetailing off of where Brennelfloss has come from always has to acknowledge the roots of the persona and the character. Otherwise it's a total 180. Um, but use your words is, is like by being not, by not being Brennelfloss presents and having no obligation to interact with the style, the persona, or anything, or the format, it is allowed to be its own thing, and thereby 
really is a much purer version of like the kind of comedy and the kind of thing I want to do now. Let's talk about the work with your partner. And I think this is interesting and a phenomenon that I've experienced myself with the with my app is that you are working with someone that comes to you as someone who's either a fan or is very familiar maybe with your work but not you as an individual and you as say you know who you actually are behind the scenes. They quickly learn that, though, uh, as you work on with the project. And it's not that you have a fear of necessarily shifting their whole worldview of, wow, this is an entirely different person than what I expect you're used to. But they're now seeing the personality versus the persona. And I just think it's an interesting phenomenon because that's happening more and more, I think. with You, know, you see YouTubers getting into game development or working on projects with others where – you know, business happens, and then when business happens, you know, you really can't have sort of an any sort of um, air of unnaturalness at that point. Like, who you are comes out when it's like, this is life. This is what we're doing. Let's do this. And I, I don't know if you had a weird moment where you saw that with your partner where it was like, oh, okay, this is a different side of this person I didn't know was, was there or not. But I don't know. It's just something I just thought of right now that I definitely could tell a point where – people that I've worked with on projects behind the scenes, whether it was video game years, whether it was my book or the app where, all right, now I got to be more real with them. And if they didn't know I was like this before, now they do. And this is just what's going on. Yeah. You know, I think that the main surprise, uh, of many, but the, the, the chief surprise for any Brennel Floss fan that gets to know me personally is the you have great abs. That's what they find out. Is the great is the great abs. Now you got to look deep. You got to really dig in there because they're under 10, 11 pounds of tummy fat, but they're there. Um, no, uh, it's uh, it's the the amount of second guessing that I do regularly. Um, you know, somebody comes up to me at a convention, and if I'm feeling kind of wheelie dealy and I'm feeling kind of upbeat, a little bit manic, I might you know make a little joke kind of like crack off a zinger and maybe it's like oh gosh they might have taken that a little bit wrong but you know like i'll, I'll commit to it in the moment because like they're coming to see parental <laughs> floss and we're joking around they walk away and then i go oh god was that too far was that was that like should i not have said that but like i think you said it to me once actually at a convention that we're next to and i think you mentioned that and i was just like i don't know like <laughs> it's well, too late now. That, that's the thing i think that particularly <laughs> the on-stage parental floss persona is so uh, blunt, will you know? Stubborn, will commit to a thing, will will stand by it and screw you. But there's constantly the the Terminator HUD behind my eyes going. What did you say? Why did you say that? What are you doing? <laughs> Be quiet. Stop talking. You know, like I think that uh, th- there's th- the second guessing vulnerable anxiety that makes you human is not often part of the Brennel Floss thing. So, so yeah, I think that that's a surprise, but you know, to be fair, Julian and I um, knew each other socially for years before working on use your words. I don't know that he had a lot to learn. I think if anything, um, he just learned that uh, I can get very obsessive about small details Uh, on a long-term project. And I think that's been helpful. Um, You know, he comes from a world where uh, you 
have a game concept, you have a prototype, and then you just plan the levels you're going to make and you have a schedule and you make them. And I was sitting there going, okay, this whole minigame, I don't think it's working for reasons X, Y, Z. I think we should cut it and convert it to this. Now, when you're working on a AAA game, unless it's one of those Ken Levine, Bioshock, iterative journey kind of games that sort of gets unusual amounts of freedom and money, usually it's like, well, it's nice that you have that thought, but here's the plan. If we had made the original plan of this game, it would be a very different game, but you know, I, I think that we we developed it more like a comedian develops 10 minutes of material. If this part's not working, cut it. Don't look back. Kill your babies. You thought it was funny? Fuck you. Um, it's not, you know. And so that that's the kind of attitude I took. And Julian was not as used to that iterative process of um, that level of iteration where – you're just throwing things out if they don't work and, and completely replacing them with an experiment until you get something that's really working. And uh, and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you really don't and you got to start over. But um, – Well, you have a game. That's the thing. Your game – and I'm shilling for you. Your game infuses your sort of uh, – your comedic wit that you've displayed in your Brennan Floss videos to an extent. Now that you're taking that sort of – OK, here's, here's my wheelhouse, all right? I don't know anything about developing games and programming or how to get it to work on Steam while using my, my, my iPhone. I don't know anything about that. You do, Mr. Partner. I know what I think is funny. And I know what I think audiences will find funny. So now we have to have a, a, a relationship. We both bring what we know best about the processes in our own worlds together. But at the same time we do that, we're fucking up each other's world and how we work. You know, sure. It's, it's, and it's, I, <laughs> yeah. I, I th- I th- and I think that like – There are things I would love to go back and tell me from two years ago. I could, like, write a two-page document that would save me from two years ago months of time and (laughs) pounds of gray hairs. But that's part of the excitement of taking on a brand new kind of project is you're going to learn stuff you never knew you never knew. Um, and you, always, you know, always, you can always pluck those hairs anyway, so that's not a big deal. That's true. That's true. I got a good <laughs> set of tweezers. Um, but you know, I I, I think that uh, that there are certain things that I would have done differently if I could go back. But the fact that I'm as proud of what we made as I am, and that it just works. Like now, my favorite thing is hopping on Twitch because the sun almost never sets on this game. There's almost always at least one game of use your words on Twitch uh, between Australia, North America, UK, Europe. There's almost when as most of the time when I'm awake anyway, there's almost always a game. So getting to just sit in and lurk and not have them realize I'm there and watch strangers enjoying it is this huge satisfying thing because they're the people we made it for. And to be frank with you, we did not make it for critics. Um, critics are a person who is used to playing a game alone, probably at home, playing it as fast as they can to crank out a review and get it to the press and, you know, get on with their lives. We didn't really make it optimized for them. We optimized it for people just, you know, playing with their friends or playing in a stream. So you're saying you didn't make the game for some hack destructoid writer? Is that what you're saying, Brent? I I would never (laughs) imply... I'll say this. Gosh, did I love the coverage of De- the Destructoid did in February. Um, that's that's my very positive note, my very thankful <laughs> note to Destructoid. 
I'll tell you what, though. I love that 10 out of 10 we got from Constructoid. That was uh, that was really. Oh, really? I, I've not seen that. One. <laughs> I'm just full of shit. I'm just kidding. Um, what about what about you're talking about collaboration with someone, quote unquote, outside the biz. What about the collaboration? You've done a decent amount of collaborations within the YouTube com- uh, community. How does that usually go in terms of when you know someone only professionally, like when you work with someone like Doug Walker, you work with someone like a, a Pat Contry, that uh, egomaniac I've heard. Um, when you go from the general, oh, I know you admire your work too. Okay, now I have to make something that's decent with this fucking person. Now I can't stand. Now this really gets to that point. You know what I'm saying though, where you quickly go from, yeah. oh wow, creative, you know, in a creative way, I think we can do good work. But now we actually have to get along. We actually have to, you know, break the work up, get the work done, and not kill each other in the process. Uh, and I know there's you've run probably the gamut of okay, this has gone smoothly too. This could have been a little bit better. Um, are you ever sort of keen now when you talk to YouTubers where, oh, I'm, I, I, I like you professionally, but I'm hoping you're not a, a piece of shit if we ever have to work together? Maybe I, I could have worded that nicer. <laughs> well, I mean, look, I have collaborated with a few, but I'm not a natural collaborator. I wish I were, but I'm not. So I think of collaborations very much in terms of uh, alpha and beta. And I think that there are three ways this can go. Doug was an alpha. He had a much bigger deal channel than me. He had a very established way he wanted it. And I was a guest in his video. So even though I wrote the music, I wrote the music for him to his specifications. I appeared in the video and he directed. So I was a beta to his alpha. And that went fine. Um, and with Demon Tomato Dave, Dave is brilliant, uh, but Dave's style is not very dominant. And only in our second outing, he and I, did he really did, did like I realize that by putting more faith in him and giving him more slack, I'd get better, better stuff from him because I'm naturally un- for better or worse kind of dominant. Um, then the third example is you and me, where I feel like we met each other right at, uh, the football heads you see before Monday night football, like, you know, like, and it wasn't, (laughs) obviously it wasn't torrid. Um, it was, uh, just a very balanced amount of, uh, of like dominance versus submission. And, uh, I think that that was unique because, uh, it, it was, you know, very much a back and forth where we both wanted to be heard and acknowledged, um, but it wasn't like one of us was working for the other or in the other's realm. We were really kind of combining, uh, you know, whereas like with Dave, originally it was like Dave, me inviting Dave into my realm. You know what I mean? Um, so I feel like that, that's those are my thoughts as far as how collaborations can go and they all have their challenges, but I I think that what's more natural for me, and this is also true with my musical theater collaborations, the more equal things are, the harder time I have sharing. It's actually easier for me to be a worker bee for somebody else's product than it is to three-legged race with them every step of the way. 
so I really should have just worked you to death on Nintendo Hemian Rhapsody versus making you like a 50-50 partner is what you're saying. I should have just said, this is what you're going to do. Fucking do it, Brent. Get going. I, I want more, I want more melody. I, I want to hear more flute in the background, even though there was no flute. But <laughs> was there a flute? <laughs> I maybe. I don't know, man. This no. is like many beers ago. I, I, and I and I still apologize for not. I, th- I think it came out very well. I just apologize for the fact that we never recouped really our costs on that project because it got claimed. Well, uh, but you know, if people... It was still, I'm still very proud of it. That's the only video I can honestly say that's gone viral where I was like, wow, I've, I've, seen, I've seen this on 25 websites in a day. I was like, yeah, I was like oh, that's you know, pretty cool. Bri- Brian May acknowledged us. And I can, till the day I die, say that of Brian Queen, May acknowledged us. That's not nothing. Um, yeah. And it's all a gamble. I mean, geez, like... When I think about the videos I thought were going to explode that just didn't and the ones that were sleeper hits and the ones that did explode that I really uh, just were almost an afterthought. It's just it's a numbers game. You keep going. You keep making your thing. Um, But, uh, you know, I think there is certainly an element of achievement to it because of the number of people that have seen it and enjoyed it. And I'm so glad recouped cost. And I'm so glad I have to dig you on this. I'm so glad you are not the alpha on that one because if you were the alpha, there might not have been a second verse to the song. So I'm glad. <laughs> I mean, you know, I will never I, forget that. I will never forget that conversation because I was at my local Fry's, which is a, was an electronic store, and I think I was looking for. I think it was right before it was before the NES Marathon, or I was looking for a computer part or something. And, and then you call me and you're like, "Yeah, Pat." This is behind the scenes, and if you don't want to talk about this, I think this thing is funny because I remember walking on the fries like just like, oh, this can go really bad at this point between us where you're like, you know what, Pat? Yeah, this song's too long. And I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean the thing is that I tend – you know, my big huge hits from the first two years average about 70 seconds. Um, and Bohemian Rhapsody is ambitious as a thing to do a one-to-one parody with because it is so long. Um, and there was a point at which I worried that people would just want to get to the opera part and skip over the ballad. Um, and, you know, in the end, that wasn't a concern in the final cut. Um, I think that this is an example of the fact that I tend to be very much about, like, how can we most efficiently get through what we're trying to get through and never put the audience, uh, never make them wait. Um, and you know, the irony being then Dave and I (laughs) cracked open Ocarina of time and ended up doing a freaking, what is it? 11 minute thing. Um, but like, you know, Dave also had a 16 minute video. He once did all acapella, um, out of just the love of it. So like, you know, who knows? Maybe the Bohemian Rhapsody thing kind of showed me that, like, if if they've got good stuff to watch, they'll keep watching. I just think that at the time I was nervous to make people wait through that long of a ballad when the jokes came slower because it's just literally a slower tempo. But, oh, you know, okay. you, you were right, which is basically the thing that I come around to when you bring this up. Uh, at least <laughs> once a year. Why, but that's not why I brought it up. I didn't want you publicly for you to say I was right on this subject. I just thought it was a funny story because that was a prime example of 
I was not going to budge. And if you didn't know how I was before that point in terms of if I think that I am right on this, then I, you know, I'm not going to fucking back down on it. That's where there was no, you know, alpha and beta situation at that point. It really was. Well, if I don't convince Brent that he should budge on this, this could have a bad ending to this sort of, sure. you know, creative, uh, creative uh, output between us. But it turned out well, you know, I think it did. Uh, yeah, Rip I think it just started it just, all right, but then turned. But whatever. <laughs> so. Both examples of the fact that, like, I feel like when I'm, it's like, it's like if I'm obviously in charge for whatever reason. Like I'm, I'm, I've contracted somebody who I'm paying, or you know, there's, or if I'm obviously not in charge. Um, those are always easier for me to do when there's true collaboration with that you know good healthy arm wrestling that comes with really getting in there especially when you have like different uh different aesthetics different artistic priorities uh it's tricky like i i had you were very specific about the edit for bohemian raps or sorry nintendo bohemian rhapsody uh about the specific uh clips you wanted from specific games and I was not prepared for the level of specificity. However, when I – the very few times I've had somebody edit a With Lyrics video, <laughs> you better believe I was micromanaging them uh, to the nth degree because it's either right or it's not. Um, but yeah, the, the lesson for me was one that I – you know, in my little Hindu – in my little Hindu soul arc, uh, th- this lifetime for me is learning how to collaborate truly and not just – be a follower or a leader. Well, it, well, collaboration to me is always, you know, you rely on your partner to do better that you cannot and vice versa. So in that situation, me telling you, okay, I think it should be this game here, this game here, I kind of know NES games, right? So it'd be like if I, if, if you know, if I came to you and said, you know what, uh, Brent, this, this arrangement here, you got to pick it up right at this point. You'd be like, fuck you, Pat. Like, this is not what you do. So I figured that was my strength in the relationship at that point was, all right, I know what games are going to resonate with people for, for, for this video. So these are the ones I think are known enough that are difficult enough that people will say, oh, I know that that game's really hard, so let's put Investor's Quest here. So that's why I, what I thought my strength of the relationship was at that point. You know? Yeah, and you infused it with an, with with work that would appeal to your audience so if they're showing up for the video they're getting what they came for visually the so one it makes th- sense the one thing i cannot believe i did not tell you to do or do myself after the fact was not use a miracle piano for the piano shots that would have been something that maybe two percent of the audience would have realized but for me that'd be like okay now that's perfect we're using the fucking nes piano that no one really knows about but then we had to bought one i should have done it uh i should have done it but I, it was just something that didn't didn't get into my head at the, at that point. Yeah, I I think that the few times, you know, by contrast, the few times I've really on a project thought there's nothing I can possibly add to this. It's yeah. perfect. Those aren't the good ones. Like you know, you, you never really finish a thing. You just abandon it and <laughs> put it out there in the world. I thought as he birthed it, you abandoned it. Fuck it, I'm done with that video. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, you know, what's the difference, really? If you can't keep working on it, th- that's honestly one of the things that, uh, and I know I keep coming back to this, but you can patch a game. If I could patch YouTube videos, my work would never be done. 
Um, but, you know, sometimes you're going to get a fact Uh-oh. slightly wrong or, or you're going to leave yourself open to misinterpretation. You're going to make a joke that actually was a bit far or uh, didn't land the way you thought it would. And uh, the, the, the updatability of a game appeals to me so much because um, you can go, hey, how do, we, how do we just rip that out and replace it with something better uh, so that we don't have to cringe at this thing that's not working forever? You let your George Lucas uh, shine on through game development. You, know, you can't CG out stuff in your, uh, your old videos. You, know, you can't add uh, you know, spiky hair to uh, the German Nintendo doctor engineer, which is my, probably my favorite character you've done. <laughs> I can definitely imagine bringing that guy back. I don't know what he would do, but I wonder, do you have a Switch? No, I still, it, they're hard to get locally in San Diego still. I think what Nintendo did was sent the same amount out no matter what the region was. So San mm. Diego stores per store got the same amount as like, you know, a Target in San Diego got the same amount as a Target in Oklahoma where it could be a less lightly uh. you know, populated area. I think that's what right. they did because people are like, oh, yeah, my, my Best Buy has 10 still. I'm like, I can't find them at mine. You well, know? what I'm getting at is um, I would love you – know, there's something just so great about the concept of uh, taking a tune that was built into the console that everyone with that console heard and then doing something with that because really – the I did a I did a me channel video and I did a Wii Shop video and even though they are not the same character, they're both just just weird versions of me. Um, and the idea that like, I, I felt like the Wii U did not really have anything like the lyrical hummable tunes that the Wii did, but if the Switch in some part of it, has a little tune that, like, isn't updated every time they come out with a new game. That's just a little thing that you hear each time. That would be so great for future Brennelfloss stuff because it brings everyone who played that console together and not just, like, you know, between you and me, I recently wrote an RC Pro-Am lyric. and Whoa, that I'm excited. Will... <laughs> yeah, you're excited. And, like, the three people that played it in, like, the, the compilation that Rare came out with last year for the Xbox One. But, like, it's really between me and me. Whereas um, what's really fun about We Shop Channel and me uh, and the, the Me Channel is um, that it encapsulates memories of that entire console. Well, don't you have a subset of your audience that's going to listen to every With Lyrics video you put out regardless? You know, like, even if they don't know the game, like, oh, let's see what Brent's doing next, you know, and then I can always find out about the game later, or at least I see the funny parts, because I can see the game as he's explaining the fact that you shoot missiles on a, on a radio-controlled, you know, course, which is insane. Sure, but if, you, if you're going to accept that a With Lyrics video is, like, 30 to 90 hours of work, and you know going into it that... Uh, a Phoenix Wright is going to be a million viewer, and an RC Pro Am is going to peak at twenty thousand. Sometimes it's hard to have the same chin up, let's do this, high oh, five on, kind of right. attitude. It won't be twenty thousand. Uh, come on, you're right. Fifteen thousand. Uh, no, uh, sorry. I, come on, right. I'll, I'll retweet it. That'll get you a bump. You know. No, I mean, like, I, you know, it's possible it could go past that. The only point I'm getting at is I know. You, you, what's, that is, uh, at you a know, certain point, yeah. like, if, you, if you're going to put in that amount of work, and that's not to say, I mean, it's always a balance, right? Like, I, I could have just focused on Candy Crush, Skyrim, 
uh, Neko Atsume, like these really popular, you know, uh, games that, that would appeal to everyone because of the nature of the game, just games that I didn't happen to play. It's a balance. But that's every YouTuber, though. You know what you can do if you want to blow up, but you may not want to do it. I can be Pat the Candy Crush Punk. You know, I could have done that. You know what I mean? <laughs> I could have done that. You know, oh, it, it's man. just that is your heart going to be into that if, if you're going right. in that direction? It's, again, that balance of you do one for them and you do one for yourself afterwards. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Like, one one thing that I found surprising was – I mean, okay. So, so one thing that sucks about making games is if you're on the creative side, you're done a long time before it comes out. And you don't get to do more stuff that makes any difference for a while. So, like, we froze the creative content in January. We came out April 4th. So I had this stretch where I didn't want to get heavily involved into any new creative stuff because at any point there could be an emergency with Use Your Words. And also I was, like, watching how the beta was received and trying to, you know, spending a lot of time trying to get press coverage. But here's what I'm getting at. During that time, I clocked an embarrassing number of hours on a game called Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley being like the runaway indie hit of 2016. Um, if you haven't played it, it's it's Harvest Moon with a little bit of Animal Crossing and uh, it's addictive as a mofo. But um, that that video at any time in the next year will be very popular if I get around to it. What's concerning for me, or at least what's telling for me, is the fact that on the one hand, I was enjoying a game for the first time in a long time, enjoying a pure playthrough of a new game and not sitting there taking notes. That was great. But the the lack of motivation to get in there and like make fun of it and and make a goofy song about it kind of was a compass of like, hmm, even this game that I'm really enjoying, I'm not, that's like really popular. I'm just playing. Um, One could wonder, and I don't know the answer to this, but one could wonder, has the act of making a game and knowing how many things that people can make fun of and you just roll your eyes and go, yeah, well, you don't know the whole story with that. How many things have I made fun of over the years as Brennelfloss that were a sore spot for the devs? How many things have I pointed out that were like plot holes that the devs cringed about and that there's that one dev that goes, I freaking told my team lead and he didn't fix it and it's in the cartridge forever. God damn it. You know. Um, so you, you, gained, you, you gained sympathy for the, the people that you may not attacking but – you know, teasing in your videos. Sure. Now, I don't think that stops me from, I mean, you know, I wrote the RC Pro-Am lyric and it makes all kinds of fun of the game. Um, I don't, know, I don't like, know how you have not shared that with me. I have no idea. Like I said, but okay. <laughs> it's again, like it's, it's a slow process. The, the, the thing that if there are people out there that are Brennafloss subscribers that are like, well, I'm unsubscribing. The reason not to do that is because if I did – imagine a universe where I do Brennel Floss even if I don't feel like it. The videos won't be as good and each one of them will bring down the GPA of all of my work. If I wait till I feel like it, they'll be great again. And if that takes a month or half a year or whatever, it'll lead to better work when it's time than it would if I was just – and I think we can all without naming names think of brands on the internet where – 
you know their heart is not in it. But they Absolutely. keep doing it. And the their best work in that brand was when it was fresh and new and exciting and where they really had excitement behind it. So if I if I wait till a time when I'm excited about doing it again and also structurally supported by a lifestyle and a this and a that that allows me to do it easily, I think that'll lead to better work. <laughs> the lifestyle that allows it. That's just funny. <laughs> You're lounging, you know, on your 8,000 square foot mansion. Oh, this is the Brennan Floss lifestyle. All right. Well, you know, I'll, you, you say I'll that. Talk but like, I, I'll talk about Donkey Kong Country next month. This is the lifestyle. I took a, I huge, I took a huge pay cut after doing – like to make Use Your Words required me to slow down Brennan Floss stuff. And so that means slow down the momentum of, of residual YouTube money and going into additional debt. So like I moved to Philly uh, – at least in part because I could live for cheaper than New York City. But like, you know, I will tell you, uh, I have a different feeling singing in my little recording booth in this apartment. Now, that sounds like a very delicate, uh, you know, dainty flower of an artist, uh, you know, like like being like maybe a stiff wind blows and I'm like, oh, I can't perform today. It's not like that. But there is a different sensation around it all. And I... Uh, I do wonder if, you know, different different situations in my life or, um, you know, even a different setup. Like if I lived in a house with like a man cave and in this man cave, I'm super soundproof and no one can even hear me. And I can like, you know, would, would I feel the same kind of freedom I felt living in my old New York apartment where there was no one home during the day and and. Uh, even my neighbors weren't there and there was this creative impunity. Now, this is not me saying if I didn't live in Philly, I could sing more. It's me saying there are so many variables um, to this kind of work. And uh, I'm curious to see when it'll happen, when all these drafts on the shelf, things will click into place and it'll just be time. But, you know, I took a huge hiatus late 2013, early 2014 and then had six straight months of really great Brennel Floss videos in the middle of 2014, some of my best work. I'm expecting another kind of renaissance phase like that, but it won't happen from forcing it. So you see yourself more as a traditional musician where, yeah, hey, you might have an album a year for five years, but you won't get another one now for like four or five years after that, where that's just the way it is. You know, it's just the way I'm working. It's not a, it's not a product on an assembly line. It's, it's not factory workers constructing, you know, my creative outlet. You know, this is just the way it is. It has to be ready when it's ready. Yeah. Well, and, and whenever I've gone against that, it's not had as good of uh, of an out, of a product. Like I, I, when I have forced it, I mean, I'll just come out and say there are videos from not so long ago where I think you can feel the frustration. I think uh, my Final Fantasy VII video, I. You know, I never played Seven until I was an adult, and it looks like crap now, and I don't have any of the childlike wonder, and it's clunkier than a Final Fantasy would be today, but also in a way clunkier than a sprite-based one would be, because the sprite-based ones didn't have to load all that stuff. I was really frustrated having to play that thing for like 50 hours, and you can feel it in the video. I was frustrated playing Dragon Warrior, um, and also when I was a kid, I was frustrated playing Dragon Warrior because I didn't 
get it with I, I got it at a pawn shop and I didn't have that big map manual they give you oh, with sure. it. Oh, sure. They basically um, gave you a walkthrough when you we got it from Nintendo. Right? right, right. And so, you know, you can feel a frustration in those videos that there's still some laughs, there's still some good musical arrangements, but, like, you compare that to when I think I was, like, excited and and had great things, uh, you know, like my, my, my Wii Shop channel video you talked about. That was just weird as hell. But there was a fire behind it. There was an excitement of what is this character? What is going on in this world? And I, you know, I, Final Cut was new to me, and I was having fun with uh, the green screen and what I could do with keyframing my body, and like it was fun. You could feel it. On the other avenue of fun factor and feeling it, were you surprised by not backlash, but the um. How well received your your uh, Metroid Fight for Love video was, based upon the themes you infused in it, sort of making it your own sort of vision of okay, this is how I see uh, my view of at least Metroid that I think is interesting to show the audience. Well, you have chosen to phrase it as how well received, um, and to me, that video is just a huge example of me not going with my gut and suffering the consequences. Well, you thought um, you think there was actual consequences. I mean, I'm looking at the, the like and dislike bar and you know, it's a, it's still about three quarters likes versus a quarter dislike. So while that's not what you'd want on a typical video on your channel, that's not like a disaster uh, by my sort of how I look at YouTube videos. Cause you're never going to please everyone. Well, look, you know, making Samus Aran have feelings is 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 polarizing to begin with but my original concept was going to be kind of like uh a pro like like an underlying pro gay theme but like she's got a lover that you never see she wants to get back home she wants to kick ridley's ass and 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 beat mother brain and get back home and be safe with the person she loves and at the end oh by the way it's a girl which is the thing Metroid did to us as kids. Oh, by the way, that thing this whole time, it was a girl. Um, but in this case, you know, whereas you could look at the original Metroid choice as sort of a feminist thing, this would also be like, yeah, she's a badass. Also, she's gay. Um, and, you know, like sort of the antithesis of my Truth About Toad video uh, from 2009, which is all about how Toad is secretly gay. Um, the thing is that I got a few... Cu- I got a few comments from people saying, hey, don't do that because people will sort of think you're creating this slashy, uh, you know, fanfic porn lesbian situation that you'd like to see. And I went, oh, that's a good point. But actually, no, it's not a good point. It wasn't to show them making out or touching boobs. It was just to have an interesting take on Samus that also twisted at the end in a way that is – kind of representative of the original game itself. Instead, I turned her into basically a Disney princess. People hated that. Um, the singer, uh, Alicia Umphress, still amazing. The animation for our budget is freaking amazing. Uh, $1,500 for like five straight minutes of like sci-fi channel level animations, I'll take it. <laughs> um, but, But, you know... What sucks about that one 
is that while I still think it's a, an amazing CD track, and the video is gorgeous, and I owe Oscar Diaz, the animator, for life on that, I wish I'd gone with my gut because um, if I was going to have, have more people than usual dislike that, at least it would have been on my terms and not me backing off of my original concept to, to play it safe. So you feel like the fact that you maybe played it safe might have hurt you more. But you said, okay, fuck it. Here's my vision. This is what I want to do. And I, I'm not going to handcuff myself. I just do what I want then because if people are going to hate it anyway. Or some people are going to just hate it anyway. Just do what I want to do. Well, it's like, it's like you have to go, who are the people that I'm okay hating it? If people hate it because they're like, it's not okay to be gay – well, then fuck them. Like, I don't really organize my life around people that don't think it's okay to be gay because uh, I think they're wrong. Um, but instead, I ended up making people mad that uh, are – and again, I don't think there's anything to be mad about. But if somebody is ace, by that I mean asexual, and they really relate to this notion of Samus Aran being this solitary figure, aside from the other M, this solitary figure that doesn't need a partner, doesn't need romance or or to save a princess or to be saved. And then I bring in this Disney princess element. It ends up sounding like I'm a badass warrior, but I'm only doing this for a man. <laughs> and that's so not what my intention was. Um, and I think a lot of people, they loved the demo and then the demo had – uh, the singer that you heard and it, the music was good and nobody quite saw the entirety of it till it was done. And, you know, sometimes you have a blind spot. But like I said, if people were going to dislike it, I'd rather them dislike it on my terms and dislike it for the things I liked and not sacrifice my own my own ideas in order to piss off the wrong set of people. Well, doesn't it come down to that, that you shouldn't be afraid to at least challenge what you're what your subscribers or fan base are either interested in from you or maybe you sort of twist their expectations a bit and maybe you don't spoon fed, feed them exactly what you think they should always hear from you. You know, it's, it's one of those sort of concepts I see on, on, the, on my podcast sometimes where when I'm recording it, I know it's going to be not a popular opinion with a chunk of the audience. I know that I'm going to get hate for it, but you know what? That's just the way it is. Uh, they have to deal with it. They have to be an adult and, and just, you know, if, if they respect my work otherwise, they're going to stay with me. If not, then I don't really need them to listen. If that's if it, sure. takes, if it takes if it takes one thing that they don't agree with to say, well, fuck the rest of what he has to offer. Well, then they're not really a fan of you as a person anymore. They just they just want to get, you know, I don't know. They just want to get some feedback that agrees with them. It makes them feel feel comfortable, you know, comforted for that important point in time. I don't think that's my role. As an entertainer, I don't think it's my role to always be like, okay, I'm just your security blanket, and that's all I am. Uh, that's you know that doesn't that's not that doesn't gel with I think who I am as an individual. I'm guessing I'm not guessing with you to some extent it doesn't either. Well, I, I even though I talk about like oh giving giving the audience a product that they're coming for, I think that I played with what the YouTube thing I did. I played with what that series could be throughout it. Um, with wins and losses. Uh, I did Thief, the PC series, as a rap. And actually, I think some of the rhymes 
We're pretty good. Jack of fat ring, pearls on a string, ring a ding ding. I'm the uh, jingling king of the bling bling. Like that's, uh, or like um, a fat whack with a blackjack to the back snaps all your cash smack into my knapsack. That's like those are good rhymes. However, <laughs> I am a Lily White Fraser Crane voiced rapper, um, and it didn't sound right. It, there was something kind of off about it, and people wanted the melodies, you know. So like in the same way. Uh, there's wins and losses like when I did uh, the Ballad of Jeff from Earthbound. Some people were like, do more jokes. And other people were like, oh, my God, this made me cry. Um, same with Z- Zidane to Vivi. I did a song about Vivi from Final Fantasy IX that's actually kind of a little message out there to people who are suicidal or terminally ill. And it wasn't particularly funny. And less people like it more. Whereas more people like Dr. Mario less. There's millions of people that like Dr. Mario just fine. And a few people that like Vivi the best. You know what I mean? Like sure. sometimes you make something that's nine people's favorite thing. And sometimes you make something that's a hundred people's ninth favorite thing. Um, but the, the, the Metroid thing, again, it's – I started that uh, almost three years before it debuted on my channel. And at that time, it was all very my you know the idea of Brennelfloss as a as a series with lyric series as an ongoing thing was new, and uh, you know it was experimental. But again, I, I it, hindsight twenty twenty, I would have just stuck with what I thought was interesting about it and what was more true to me, and not played it safe to avoid you know turning off the people that I don't care about anyway. Sure. Let's turn to our last major topic. YouTube is dead. Advertisers <laughs> are in a, in a funk about their ads being seen in front of content that doesn't maybe mar their brand or they don't want to be associated with. Uh, where do you stand on all this? Um, has it affected you? Have you have, do you think that YouTubers declaring a war between them and the mainstream media is overblown? I think that my opinion on it has so much to do, has everything to do with the following two facts. Somehow I have flown entirely under YouTube's radar with this whole thing. And fact number two, I'm not really a regular producer of content for my income. And so if this had happened in 2014 – and I had been losing 75% of my income, I would be tearing the roof off the place, jumping up and down and mad as hell. Now, I think it's, on the one hand, kind of bullcrap. But on the other hand, I think this was... (sighs) You ever been to Carlsbad Caverns? No. Okay, so here's the fascinating thing about Carlsbad Caverns. The thing that created it will destroy it. It was created by water. Water erodes in just the right pattern to make these huge caverns. But the water is going to keep doing that. And eventually, the whole place will cave in and be destroyed. There will be no cavern. There will be a pile of rubble. But without the water, there was no cavern. I think that YouTube would never have become a place to make money um, if not for Google AdSense and all the people that you know wanted to make money – by putting their ad before your video. But it's not that shocking that just like TV, the more YouTube goes Hollywood and corporate, 
the more that that's going to end up being a problem uh, because YouTube is not Zipster in his basement making vlogs. And it's not Lonely Girl 15. It's huge money making. You know, they've got they've got Lily Singh on billboards. They've got Dude Perfect on the side of buses. Um, So so I think it super sucks for people that are losing money, many of which are my friends. I hope them the best and I wish I hope that they make Patreons where people pay them more than they were making anyway. Um, But again, I think I'm dispassionate about this because it does not affect me at the moment. Um, You know, if it did, I still make enough money from YouTube residuals that if I was losing 75 percent of that, I'd suddenly be in a real pickle. Um, But I guess I just feel like. The longer – I mean YouTube got bought by Google and Google AdSense integration and, you know, Disney buys Maker. Like all these things kind of moved it more toward uh, – less like Wayne's World was on the cable channel and more like Wayne's World was when Rob Lowe bought it in the movie, <laughs> you know? Like that's what it feels like now. It feels like um, – Sure, but when, when Rob Lowe ran it, they were actually making money. Uh, versus, you know, on cable access, they're not. So it, it, it's one of those things where you take the good with the bad, as always, when it comes to, you know, dollars being put into entertainment, sponsorships. Um, either you have to take all of it or none of it. So when ad money comes into any medium, uh, eventually advertisers to their – well, I always argue that I'm surprised this ever happened years ago, where advertisers are like, really? You're showing my – uh, Coke ads in front of a fucking ISIS video? I don't think that's cool that you're doing that, that you really have no safeguards or any way for me to know that. So um, I will pull my ads, and that's their rights. their money. Sure. I, I think I think that what we're probably going to see is YouTube very quickly having a better – hopefully very quickly. They already have. Be- you're, you're behind the news. Google already solved it within like a week and a half. They're like, yeah, we have uh, machine learning now where we could – uh, go into these videos, go into the SEO, go into the titles and flag them all that are, it's not, you know, we, we de- demonetize them automatically. Uh, we're going to give more uh, controls directly to advertisers that they can say, okay, I don't want my ads playing in front of this particular video, take them off. And they are now not allowing monetization of videos on a channel until that channel re- reaches 10,000 overall views to safeguard more against spam. That, that 10,000 view thing, I think, is like anyone who's making a big deal out of that knows nothing about how things work. I when I first got an AdSense account and was first making money off of YouTube in 2000 and I guess 10 or 11. They didn't I was, pay la- I was later you, than that. Yeah. They didn't pay it till you made your first 100 bucks. Now, no one's making 100 bucks off 10,000 views these days. So the idea that they're not going to pay you till you get 10,000 views, okay, that's of all the mess ups and all the the ham-fisted attempts you know youtube's made to do the right thing in the past the ten thousand views thing does not bother me in the least yeah i think i I think the the rational people understand that it's confidence for advertisers to not only bring their money back but then spend more money everyone wins there's not really a loss in the long run to have more confidence of the people propping up google's uh youtube or alphabet's youtube now and then basically paying us it's not youtube paying us Directly, it's the advertisers paying us, right? Uh, Google's just the middleman in this situation, so I'm 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 glad that they fix it so quickly. And again, I just think it's something that they should have, 
you know saw before that point. But you know, I, I just think the this whole the whole war between YouTube and mainstream media. I'm just like, oh my god, this isn't how business works. Um, you know, let's just stop drumming, you know, drumming up war chants and let's just be reasonable. But hey, you know, that's what me and Eno are talking about on our, on our regular podcast with with you know with everything. What do you think about? Uh, how do I put this delicately? What do you think about YouTubers being in, in the mainstream more and more for probably not the, the best of reasons? Does that concern you at all? People perception of YouTubers in general, or is that just sort of like, well, I'm not really associated with them. So, um, know. I think it's good. I think it's good because what that means is that they're real stars. Uh, I remember, and I'm sure you have as many stories as I do when I was legitimately making good money off of YouTube and somebody on a plane would say, so what do you do? And I'd tell them. And not only would I be interrogated, but, you know, they don't, they don't <laughs> believe you because that's not a thing. You can make money off of YouTube videos? Like- right. And then like once you tell them for 10 straight minutes, they go, OK, OK. So what's your real job? And you, you know, you – it's not like, oh, woe is me. I had to face oppression. It's just to say that. I remember when it was this – it was like telling somebody, oh, yeah, I can fly. And like they don't get it. What it means for YouTubers to make real news is that they're real stars and that even though I very much am skeptical of old media and corporate interaction with YouTube and with self-broadcasting, nonetheless, I think it's great that – Somebody who does well in that arena is now um, on the world stage of entertainers. The, the, uh, you're not just a YouTube star. You're a star. So you see the legitimacy of, of even if it's being, you know, like exposés run on YouTubers for their, uh, let's just say, questionable choices for jokes or questionable worldviews. Um, the fact that, that that the Wall Street Journal deems them worthy enough to cover, that's a win overall. It's sort of we all rise up because of Absolutely. that Absolutely, because think about if, uh, you know, Seth Meyers, right? He's sort of like that, that halfway point between politics and talk. He's not quite John Oliver Bill Maher, but he's not quite uh, Jimmy Fallon. Um, you know, if he if he said some shit that was really not kosher. Oh, I shouldn't have put it that way. But if, if he if he said some stuff about Nazis that like uh, didn't land right, he'd probably find himself in some hot water and he'd probably have to talk about it and explain where he was coming from. Now, five years ago, uh, if that happened to, you know, the vlog brothers, <laughs> I like or, the vlog brothers. No, I the love con- them. The, I the love content's them. gone saying, downhill I, lately. I was, yeah. I was trying to, I was trying to make an analogy of somebody who's like an actual star. It wouldn't have made news news. It would have been in forums. It would have been on Twitter, or Facebook, but it wouldn't have been on the news news. So the fact that y- your your PewDiePie's and your Jontrons are covered by your Breitbart's and Wall Street journals is maybe not great for them, uh, but overall means. There is legitimacy to YouTube fame and stardom, and the more old media realizes that, I think the better for people like us, even though you know we're not top tier, but we've got audiences, we've got resources and a platform, and that's not nothing. It's not just you know 
working for peanuts and and making little it's not the same as as they might have thought of it in 2006, you know. That's a good way to put it. And I guess when news reports on stuff that's more salacious in general, anyway, they're going to go towards uh, covering those topics that maybe doesn't have us in the greatest of lights anyway. You know, but that's just sure. That's just, that's just news in general, though. I mean, you know, yeah, I, I think that really that's more of a boomers versus millennials thing um, than it is uh, YouTubers versus the world. Oh, there! You, see, that's interesting. That's an that's an angle I never really approached it from. Is that it's just maybe a generational? Well, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, I do not want to open up this whole can of worms, but answer me this. If if World War Three starts over Syria or North Korea, will it be boomers pulling the triggers or will it be these gosh darn millennials with their think pieces <laughs> and their YouTubes? We're not fucking all that shit up. We're the ones who, uh, you know, by and large are like, hey, you know, we are, we crowdfund our cancer. OK, we 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 are a community. We crowdfund cancer? What do we do? Please give me pancreatic cancer. What? What are you talking about? You know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> You're saying that maybe the ones on social media, at least, not all millennials, uh, are more likely the ones to be more uh, contemplative and pensive about situations versus the ones that are actually making the decisions and pulling the trigger? Is that what you're saying, Brent? Well, look, there are plenty of millennials I would not call <laughs> contemplative. Um, or is it contemplative? I don't know. What I'm saying is that it's fashionable in certain media sources to go, why aren't millennials buying diamonds? But like... <laughs> Well, We're, there are those. So there's there's going to be some that are buying. I'm guaranteed there's some people in their 20s and 30s that have bought diamonds. They're, sure, they're and there. there's also people that realize that the whole diamond engagement ring is a fucking joke made up by an advertising campaign, and really nobody gives a fuck whether or not you waste a huge amount of money on a rock that is only valuable because they've lied about its value. Yeah, more importantly, more importantly, it's a controlled supply, and they're not rare. Like that's the thing. Well, that's where, what I'm. That's what that's yeah. what I'm saying. We're, we agree on that. Yeah, they're not rare. They're they're uh, they choke the supply and they make them valuable because of the idea of their value. But anyway, that's an analogy, I think, for the way that a lot of times boomers see the differences in philosophy um, and that, you know, like, we, I don't think we're the ones who might be about to, like, blow the world up. Yeah. Is our generation fighting about what words are okay and not okay? How sensitive to be about certain things? How many genders we need to respect? Uh, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, those are fights we're going to have. But I think those are all actually good no matter what, um, even if they're not fun to have. They're good things to talk about and think about because nobody dies. You just figure stuff out better. So you're saying by – I'm trying to really – well, we can go another hour about this. You're trying to say that millennials don't have the passion for, to to change things to the extent of war uh, versus going on social media and maybe shaming someone because of a word they use. Is that is that what that you're is, – That is – that's not what I'm saying, but like you're – I'm not sure you're – 
dead wrong. Here's what I'm. I, <laughs> I mean, look like... <laughs> to crack off to crack off a line like, "Hey, the millennials aren't the ones that are about to blow up the world." That's not like a dissertation. I don't have. Uh, I don't. They're have not making it... a decision to, but like, they're, 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 you understand that there's young people that volunteer for the army and navy and marines. They're the ones that actually have the passion to do that, right? They're just maybe not the ones saying, "Okay, uh, go do." No it. offense to no offense to any of my friends in the armed forces or relatives that are currently in the armed forces. I don't think passion is guiding uh, the entirety of their choice to join the armed forces. I think there's a lot of factors that go into that. I don't think it's all patriotism. I don't. I, I don't want to. I don't want to get you. I don't want your career and Brennan Floss. I want. <laughs> I want to keep it safe right now. But I see what Look, you're saying, though. I I have I have I have uh, both been friends of, been a relative of, dated uh, people in the armed forces or veterans of. Uh, great, wonderful people. My point is that to I, 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 I just don't think it's the same as uh, world leaders who have to prove how big their hands are and uh, ultimately want either power or or a certain kind of fear and respect from from uh, other populaces or to maintain their station, blah, blah, blah. That's a whole different deal than when the, the, the Navy recruiter comes to your high school going, oh, I could get college this way and all I got to do is go to boot camp and be on a boat for a bit? Fuck, I guess. Sure. So, all right. So what are you going to say when there's a millennial president in the next, uh, I don't know, 10 to 15 years? You think they're going to act differently than the, the presidents we have now from a prior generation? Hard to say. I'd love to say yes, but at the same time, um, you know, I think that there are some – I think there are some things that like are sometimes interpreted as uh, the shadow government, the conspiracy theory Illuminati that are really just the fact that if certain people have the levers of money and power in place, they tend to want to keep them that way and that that can actually last much longer and be much more ingrained than any one president's agenda. I just think in general, I think you're overstating this quote-unquote difference between generations and how they overall think. Um, you cannot paint, I think, a, a whole generation of, well, they are more likely to think this way or the other. Yes, we grow up with different knickknacks, different technology different forms of media in general that evolves. But I still think at the end of the day, um, you know, we all are all, all uh, raised in a certain way. Um, we all have, we all are schooled. And I think, I think to move an entire generation saying, well, the next generation is less likely to go to war versus the last. That's too big of a leap for me to say uh, overall, uh, just because I, you know, I was born, I was an eighties kid and I grew up with transformers means that I, I wouldn't go you know, attack a country I think deserves it if I'm president. I don't know. I, I, I think I, I don't think it's that easy. I think there are, there are other factors involved there. And plus, uh, social media, I think that we also sort of forget also that social media isn't the the uh, beginning and end of, of culture in the world. And I think voices are magnified more on social media. And we forget that there's people that aren't, aren't on social media or don't care about it. And that doesn't really go into their way of thinking. So I think when we see something trending on Twitter that might seem like a big deal or, oh, that's just, that's cute, but that's only really big for that subset of the population, not everyone at large. But that's all the conversation we can have another time, Brent. So what do you have going on in the near future? What do you have coming up besides our nice Norwegian trip? Yeah, so I'm going back to Norway um, for the third time. 
that's in May for a convention called Iretro Spielmessen, which May means retro game fair. 21st and 22nd, I believe. Something like that. Um, and uh, 20th and 20th. So Use Your Words is actually a finalist for the Momocon uh, Indie Awards Showcase. All right. So we'll be going down there, hopefully winning an award, um, but also just showing the game off at a booth, trying to get some buzz going uh, in the beautiful city of Atlanta. We'll be there at Momocon. Come see us. And that is Thursday, May 25th to Sunday, May 28th. So right, you go from Norway to Atlanta. Yep. I'm going to be barely de-jet lagged by the time I get back. <laughs> um, so hopefully... Hopefully we can get some volunteers to help because I will tell you, as much as I dreamed for so long of like going to a convention and just showing off the game all day at a booth, it's like you suddenly realize that your your heart is enjoying it, your mind is enjoying it, your body's working retail, your body's standing up for like eight hours uh, and, you know, whereas if I'm Brennel Floss at a booth selling CDs, I can sit. I can sit and occasionally stand up for a picture. You need a nice stool, I think, that you can hop off on and off. Something, man. <laughs> I got to say, something. Because it is... Uh, Those high stools that, you know, you know, that you can at least sit back on, you know, and right. elevate up and down. That would be cool. Well, I'll, I'm looking forward to seeing you at, uh, in Norway, and then I'll probably see you at Too Many Games at the end of June. And yep. then maybe, maybe later on in other conventions later in the year, I will see you again. Brent, it's always great to talk to you. People can find you where? At Brennelfloss? Uh, yeah. The, I would say um, if you want the video game music stuff, search Brentelfloss on YouTube. If you want to check out Use Your Words, uh, our website is useyourwords.lol. Uh, you can also buy us uh, on whatever store you like. Uh, the Steam Store, the Xbox One Store, PS4, and by the time you're hearing this, probably PS4 Europe, maybe even Wii U. So uh, give us a shot. And uh, my Twitter is at Brentelfloss. Game Boy Color version of the game to be added in 2018. All right, Brent. Yeah. Great. It was always great talking to you. We, we always have a good conversation, and you know, we'll talk about partnership in the future when we go full politics and social and then and we burn off three quarters of our, our fan bases respectively. So all right, I'll talk to you later, my friend. Cool man, have a good one. Thanks again to Brent Black for speaking to me this week. If you enjoyed the Not So Common Podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can rate the podcast and leave a comment to help give it a boost, and feel free to spread the word via social media to let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support the Not So Common Podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.